Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. In science, we have what's called peer review. The paper goes to a journal, the editor sends it to scientists who should have expertise in judging the paper, and they make a judgment. The judgment could be binary, publish, or trinary. Publish, not publish, or it needs work. It's a process where even if 90% of the people might think the paper is great, if they just happen to choose someone who doesn't like it for whatever reason, the paper might get published. So you're somewhat dependent on who the reviewers are, who the reviewers are that get chosen. Welcome back, LookUp listeners, to another episode of the LookUp podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, and thank you all so much for listening along, for following the newsletter, uh, for commenting, for offering guest suggestions. Uh, We've got a lot of great guests coming back to you this fall after a couple of weeks off this summer. I hope you're still enjoying, and if you have any ideas as to who we should have on uh, in the future, please let me know. We've had guests talking about the metaverse. We had guests on talking about NFTs, months, even a year ahead of their popularity exploding. Uh, We've had guests talking about Clubhouse before it blew up. Um, So, you know, we're here early evaluating subjects of interest um, to many of you and obviously to me. And I just want to continue on this journey of exploration into self and discovery of the new and exciting trends happening across science and tech and self-discovery, self-work. So thank you all again. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Jack Feldman, professor at the graduate program in bioscience at UCLA. He's a distinguished professor in neurobiology. He has made groundbreaking research in a number of fields, but specifically focused on revolutionizing our understanding of the neural control of breathing, which, as you know, I'm a breathwork instructor, and this is something very close to my heart. He's done a bunch of stuff, and I I listed a few of it off in the uh, previous introduction. So if you haven't listened to part one of this conversation, um, please do. Jack is now very interested in studying the Uh, relationship between breath and our emotional state, um, proving that uh, breathing can have an impact on uh, changes in our emotion. As he kind of starts the end of his career, um, that was something that he mentioned in this episode as one of his main goals before he stops doing research in the lab and pivots towards something else. In this conversation, we talk a lot about Um, different concepts in yoga, and I stress test them against Jack's knowledge, deep, deep knowledge of the breath and the neurological foundation for breathing. And it's pretty cool because Jack has some great insights and intuitions as to why some of these yogic um, ideas around how we breathe, why we breathe, uh, the positive impact of breathing 
um, might be scientifically proven, even in instances where he makes very clear that there is no scientific evidence yet as to this being accurate. So um, that's important to note as well. He does a great job of kind of highlighting what's based in science and what's based in his own interpretation um, based on years of study as to what might be possible. And so we have this great conversation around, you know, around yoga and breath. And that's something that I just absolutely love. Uh, really grateful to Jack and to Julia for introducing me to Jack. Thank you, Julia. And I hope that we can have some conversations about this in the future. Uh, Jack also talks about some breathing techniques that are one breathing technique that he does that's great for um, practitioners called box breathing. It's very simple. And some of his experiences going to various um, breathing <clears throat> retreats and meeting some of the people that are working on them, uh, mostly from the kind of like new age philosophy of breath rather than the scientific foundation. So really interesting conversation. I uh, hope you enjoy it. And without anything else from me, I give you Dr. Jack Feldman. Right now, right, the hot topic around science and and um, trust in scientific institutions is, of course, with like the vaccine, you know, and um, folks, you know, there's a large population in the United States that don't trust the science around um, around, you know, these new vac vaccinations because these, you know, certain certain bodies, the CDC, the WHO have gone back and forth on on various topics. And I know this is off subject, but I'm just curious because I know that you're a man of science. So I just wonder kind of what your take is on, on that and kind of the science maybe behind, um, um, you know, how the science has been performed, how around COVID and this outbreak and how, you know, how much trust you have in, in kind of the decisions that have been made from some of these institutions. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. I grew up, when polio was epidemic and Salk invented a vaccine and it, I think was mandatory and my parents had me vaccinated and I'm very fortunate that I did not get polio. And with my kids, there was, there's now a long list of vaccines and my grandkids, a long list of vaccines, which prevent diseases that would either be fatal or uh, irrevocably uh, diminish their uh, life outcome. Uh, and we accept them. And there are rare cases where that uh, the vaccines can cause problems. But, you know, you know, we we have humans value loss much more than gain. So the when you read about a downside of a vaccine, that has much more valence than the gain you have of being protected from disease, because if you're not infected already, you don't see that in your imminent, uh, immediate uh, view, but you see the possibility you get some bad reaction. The vaccine has now been given to tens of millions of people, no certainly short-term response, no indication that they're going to be any long-term response. Um, people wear seatbelts. Now, I've been wearing a seatbelt for ever since they became available, I've yet to get in a serious car accident. 
So you could argue, why bother wearing a seatbelt? Well, you wear a seatbelt because the consequences of the rare possibility you get in an accident, whether it's your fault or someone else's fault, are so consequential that you do the relatively benign act of wearing a seatbelt. So I think that the if you look at the pluses and minuses in getting the vaccine, the vaccine can kill you. It can give you long-haul symptoms. It can do all sorts of, and you can infect other people. So if you're young, you can infect your children, or your children can infect you. If your children get we used to think children couldn't get it. Now we know they can get it and can get long-haul symptoms. We don't know how that's going to affect their life. Now, if you weigh that against the possibility that the vaccine does something negative, right now that data is extremely small. I wouldn't say it's zero, it's extremely small. And certainly if the odds are 99.999999 in favor, the one is not a single thing you would do in your life that um, would uh, you wouldn't choose the 99.99999%. And I think it's become a political problem. I, I think as a scientific problem, the data is very, very strong. It was a miracle as far as I'm concerned, not in the religious way, but in the sort of the scientific way, that Moderna and um, Pfizer and the other pharmaceutical companies were able to come up with an effective vaccine in this time frame. I mean, it's, it's spectacular. And if you look at the mechanisms by which it works, yes, they're novel mechanisms, but the data shows that they're highly unlikely to produce any long-term effects except to give you immunity to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. It's more detail, Mark, but I, you know, if any of your listeners have not got vaccinated, not gotten vaccinated, you are doing a disservice not only to yourself, but everyone else around you. And we have the public good that sometimes supersedes the individual good. So even if you're reluctant, think about doing it for other people. You should do this with the same spirit that you don't run red lights. It's to protect mm-hmm. not only yourself, but other people. Thank you for that. So moving away from uh, the topic du jour um, on, on COVID-19, which was a curveball that uh, I wasn't expecting to uh, send your way, but I thought you, you handled that very nicely. Um, I wanted to get into breath and emotions. Um, so how does our breathing impact our emotional state and vice versa? Many of us in academia tend to be very isolated. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then, and then we have, you know, very surrogates. I mean, uh, Einstein said, you don't understand it yourself unless you can explain it to the waiter. So the waiter is now standing in for people sort of outside the, the silo. And, um, but, you know, people are not scientists. I mean, I, I think that that's okay. It's not an elegant expression. And maybe other one, there are other ones that are just escaping me. But to answer your question, or did you finish posing your question? Well, the question is, the question is how does breathing impact our emotions? How does emotion impact our breathing? Um, you know, I have my yogi answers to this, but I'm curious from the science, the scientific perspective. Well, I think several thousand years of observation 
show fairly conclusively that breathing practice in one form or another can have a positive effect on emotional state. And more recently, I think we have good data that also can affect positively cognitive function. Now, these are mostly, or this is basically just observational. Okay, it, so I don't think there's any doubt that it works. Now, you can then say, well, maybe it's a placebo effect, that it's not because of breathing, but it's because of something else that you're doing and you're doing breathing at the same time. I think the data now is becoming clearer that breathing itself has an effect. It's not that that's the only effect of things like uh, yoga or meditation, but breathing itself has an effect. What is this evidence? When we look at the brain, the cortex, we find that there are lots of things going on that are background oscillations. That is rhythmic waxing and waning of activity that uh, goes throughout the entire brain. Neuroscientists have basically come to the conclusion that these signals are, re are serve a real purpose in helping the brain function. Uh, for example, when I'm looking at you on the computer screen, I'm listening to you, but and we could be doing this in person, I see you as a unified whole. I don't see your face off in one place and the sound emanating somewhere else. My brain takes that information, which is coming in by two completely different pathways. The visual signal is coming into my eyes, the retina going into my, the back of my brain, and the auditory signal is coming in through my ears into my brain stem. But I unify this, and this is called the binding problem. And when you think about it, it's pretty mysterious how we learn or the brain is programmed to see this as unified. And one idea that has a lot of traction is that you have these oscillations in the brain and that the signal coming from my eye and ear about you are ultimately converging on other places in the brain. Now, signal processing in the brain involves uh, signals being looked at on a millisecond basis, that is, on a basis of a thousandth of a second. So if two signals are coming in from different places, if they're within a few thousandths of a second, the neuron that receives that input will interpret that information differently than if they're separated by 25 thousandths of a second. So how do we assure that things are coming in at the right timing? Well, one way is that these oscillations are appearing throughout the brain. And when the signal comes in from uh, the eyes and the signal coming from the ears, that we, we generate the outputs based mm -hmm. on whether they're in the peak or the trough of that oscillation. Mm -hmm. So that makes those signals synchronized in a way that the brain now understands them. If you desynchronize them, then the information get all jumbled. Now, we have many different oscillations. Some are very fast. Some are at up to 100 times per second or even faster. And some are slower, up to a few times per second. One very slow one that has been under, uh, 
mapped recently, that is seen throughout the brain recently, are related to breathing rhythm. So you find throughout your brain rhythms that follow your breathing cycle. And these are regions of the brain that are involved in emotion, cognition. And when people have interfered with them in experimental animals, mostly rodents, they find that the emotional and cognitive state of these animals is perturbed. That is, these breathing signals are playing a role. And what we're trying to find out is what kind of, how the signals get from breathing to the brain. And then once they get into the brain, how they're involved in signal processing. Now, one thing that's notable about breathing is that of all these oscillations in the brain, breathing is the only one you can easily control. You can go from one breath every five seconds to one breath every 10, 20, 30 seconds. Mm. Now, if you imagine that the brain is dependent on that every five second normal breathing and suddenly you make it every 10 seconds, there's going to be a disturbance in the way the signals are processing. Even a single breath seems to do something. You know, when you we started the podcast by taking a deep breath, we know that's relaxing. Oh, you mm-hmm. engage in something that's anxiety inducing, uh, whether it's, a, you know, you, you're going on a date, you're looking up investments, uh, <laughs> you know, all these things. <sighs> Your deep breath or a few deep breaths calm you down, and that's real. So even a single breath is disturbing that the parts of your brain that's inducing the anxiety to the point that it'll translate induce the reduce the anxiety. Now, you can imagine that if a single breath does that, if you do it for a series of breaths over a period of time, that you may begin to invoke processes in the brain that have a more lasting effect on those things. So the analogy I like to use is if you think of uh, someone who's clinically depressed and they have activity that underlies that depression going around in a circuit of neurons. And the, one of the ways that the brain consolidates information is that when things repeat, it strengthens the connections between neurons. And so if your depression is there all the time, the circuit in which it's involved in is going to get more and more strongly connected. The consequence of that is that it's hard to break down. And Mm -hmm. when it gets really serious, the treatments that are often used for depression, uh, verbal therapy, some of the medications, don't work. In that case, heroic interventions seem to have some effect. So, uh, 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 So you have electroconvulsive shock, which Mm -hmm. is pretty heroic. Basically, you put electrodes on either side of the head and you send a huge current through the brain. And what this happens, it induces transiently a convulsion. So it has to be done under very controlled clinical conditions. But many people with severe depression find relief. What is happening in all likelihood in this uh, is my interpretation, and other people have theories, uh, some of which are exactly the same, so I don't mean to claim that this is original, is that it's disturbing the circuits involved in depression. And moreover, if you do it over and over again, 
the nervous system not only has the ability to strengthen synapses, it has the ability to weaken synapses. And if you do this repetitively, you may be weakening those synapses and maybe getting longer lasting relief. Hmm. Now, electroconvulsive shock is pretty heroic. There are less invasive but still invasive things like deep brain stimulation where they put electrodes in a particular spot of your brain and disrupt those circuits. But what I think breathing is doing is it transiently erupt, uh, disrupting those circuits, but you have to do it for a longer period of time, you maybe 30 minutes a day, and you do it repetitively, you begin to get relief because as those circuits are disrupted, they begin to weaken. And as they weaken, you find some relief from whatever it is, the depression, anxiety, and whatnot. So I think that's the mechanism. I think they're, they're real. What I don't have a particular opinion about is the different forms of breathing practice. Um, I don't dispute that mm -hmm. different yeah. forms of breathing practice can have different effects. I am not... Um, that's familiar with the data that may be out there that speaks specifically to that. But here again, my, my advice to people is that breathing practice, to the best of my ability to judge, works. And if you don't do a breathing practice, try something. It's the advice you give to someone who doesn't exercise. Get off the couch and do anything. Walk, run, get on a machine, do whatever you want, but do something and do something that you can repeat. So, and then once you start getting into exercise, you may find that particular forms of exercise are better for you. Or maybe there's a particular activity you want to excel at. You know, if you're a, a, a baseball player, a football player, a runner or whatnot, there may be different forms of exercise that are optimal for you. And I look at breathing the same way. That is, start a simple breathing practice, uh, you know, something very simple. There are lots of apps out there. What, what do you practice? So I'm, I'm very primitive. I basically do box breathing. Um, mm -hmm. Box breathing is you inhale for a period of time, you hold your breath for a period of time, mm -hmm. you exhale slowly, and then you hold that. And I typically use five, 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 five. Mm -hmm. Prayama uses a different sequence, uh, but I don't do anything more extreme than that. And I don't mean extreme in a, a pejorative sense. There's a very gentle technique that most people can, can do. If five, 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 five doesn't work, you do four, 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 four. And many of these meditation apps uh, work. I, uh, if I need an app because I have, there's too much background stuff going on in my head, I have Calm. And Calm has one thing, which just this box breathing. There's a tone that goes on every five, five seconds. So it's easy for me to do. But I'm not proselytizing that that's the one to use. I will say... No, I'm just, I'm just, curi just curious what your practice is, because clearly you, you believe that, you know, that the science would prove I, I that. I believe that it works, for, it works for me. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not denying that it could be a placebo effect, but at that point, I don't care. It works for me. Now, yeah. Andrew Huberman, who's a terrific neuroscientist and has a great broad, uh, podcast about neuroscience, told me that in his work with Navy SEALs, that when they're in situations of high anxiety, 
that they use box breathing to calm down. And clearly, for them, calming down is much more important to them. Uh, <laughs> for me, and it's a very simple practice. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been to retreats where colleagues have used um, different methods, like Wim Hof has a yeah. whole broad array of different breathing techniques. And I, I um, don't know enough about them, about the specifics, about how they might have particular effects. I, I simply will, will assert with some degree of personal confidence that a regular breathing practice will invariably have a positive effect on emotional and cognitive state. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and I think for any listeners, if they want to uh, to try it out, box breathing is a great a great technique um, to practice. It's it's simple. It's you know you can take it with you anywhere, which is one of the things I love about breath work. Versus like, you know, the Wim Hof stuff, you know, you're, if you're doing it in air holotropic breath work, you're doing it in a public space. It's going to, it's going to draw some attention, um, which it's not as accessible, um, when you're in private. There's, uh, one thing you mentioned, which was kind of the number, it's just a stat. Do you recall the number of breaths in an average lifetime? Yeah, it's probably between 700 million and a billion in a normal lifetime. Um, okay. And, you know, that's, there- you know, it's inexorable. You don't stop breathing. You do it 24-7, 365. And the only time it gets interrupted for an extended period is if you you voluntarily breath hold. You take a drug that stops breathing like uh, opioids. Or you have sleep apnea where uh, most causes of sleep apnea is not because the brain stops breathing rhythm. is that your tongue and airway simply shut off and you... There's no airflow. Interesting. The um, the there's a there's a saying that one of my gurus used to say, which was, "He who controls breath controls life." And um, I'm curious if you think that um, it's possible that through slowing breathing, um, you can elongate your life. I mean, that might be a big leap, but um, you know, there's all this longevity tech. Uh, research happening right now. And uh, it's, um, you know, the yogis actually believe that you're born with a, a predetermined number of heartbeats and thus elongating your breath allows you to slow your heart rate and therefore to extend your life to the point where some yoga gurus have, you know, been claimed to have predicted when they were going to pass into, you know, whatever you believe is the next, is the next realm. And I know I'm not speaking necessarily to, to, um, you know, well, actually, I'm just curious, like, do you, this could be a follow-up question, which is like, as you're exploring breath, has it made you, um, more of a believer in the metaphysical or kind of take wonder and kind of the unknown, or maybe as a scientist, you already do. I'm curious kind of where you, where you fall on the spectrum, like Oppenheimer, right. Was a scientist that I think, um, really, especially towards the end of his life, kind of took to more Eastern um, philosophy and, and living and ideas. Um, I don't know. Anyways, that's not really a question. Question number one, if I had to distill is, do you believe that um, elongating the breath might have an impact on your lifespan pending no accidents or you know disease or anything like that? I think there's at least two things I would say. If you look at... Um, 
the lifespan of mammals of different sizes, the biggest one usually live longer. So an elephant lives mm. a lot longer than a mouse. Um, their heartbeats are much slower. And if you count the number of heartbeats in the lifetime, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong on this, they have a similar number of total number of heartbeats. So it is not, it is conceivable that our hearts have a certain number of beats, whether that is something that's inscribed in our DNA or it's just a matter of you can only repeat something so many times, I don't know. One of the issues about slowing heartbeat is that for most of us, it's not a matter of simply slowing heartbeat. You have to be in, you know, the better physical condition you're in, uh, the, uh, your sleep-wake pattern, the less stress you have will tend to slow your heartbeat, your sympathetic function as it, it gets reduced. So it's hard to simply say it's heartbeats. Now, mm. I would say that there's reasonable data that if you exercise, you reduce your stress, you sleep well, you'll live longer. Now, associated with that may be the fact that you're breathing slower, your heart rate is slower. Um, so I don't doubt that, but I don't know uh, the data that if you just specifically slowed your heartbeat without doing any of these other things. And I think it's hard to do any of these other things. I think if you have a yoga practice or a breath practice, you're going to become less stressed. Uh, and uh, other factors related to health, you're going to sleep better. And so um, the pathway by which you get to that state uh, may vary. So I, um, would not, I, I don't think I would say that slowing, the, uh, re slowing your breath rate per se will extend, extend your lifespan, but I would say that the positive effects that would be involved in slowing your uh, breathing will have an impact likely through a whole host of other, a host other effect, uh, effects on stress and sleep. Mm -hmm. Now that said, um, I have colleagues who looked at individuals who had clinical um, anxiety. That is, they need, they, they go to a, someone to get help with their anxiety. And what they found, um, this is Alicia Moret and, uh, at uh, Southern Methodist, is one of the leading uh, people in this field, um, that people who are in this state of, of clinical anxiety tend to hyperventilate. That is, they breathe more than is necessary. And what I mean by that is we try and regulate our breathing to keep our CO2 levels at a certain amount. And if you breathe more than that, it's called hyperventilation. That is the levels of carbon dioxide drop. Now that has a profound effects on all the body function because CO2 is gonna be related to the acid base balance of your blood. That is less CO2 means it's less acidic, more alkalytic. More CO2 means it's more acidic. 
And that has an effect. Every all cell function depends on this amount of acid, which is <coughs> we refer to as pH. So what they found was many of these people were hyperventilating and their CO2 levels were below normal. They trained, they, they developed a training procedure to teach these individuals to breathe more slowly. And when they did that, their CO2 levels went back towards normal. And as they went back towards normal, at the same time, their anxiety levels got reduced. Hmm. Um, so this is a case where their hyperventilation was due to their breathing rate uh, likely being too high, to reducing their breathing rate, making them less anxious. And my guess would be if you're less anxious, you're likely to have a longer lifespan if you may, could maintain it. Um, but that's the only piece of data, and it comes from a population that has a clinically diagnosed problem. I have a couple of other kind of like yoga um, tropes, let's say, that I'd love to run by you from, you know, from the perspective of a neuroscientist and then who studies breath, right? This is a rare opportunity for a yogi who practices breath work um, and hears all sorts of statements that are made. So we got, let's say, 10 minutes left. I'm really appreciative of your time. Um, so thank you. There's um, these these channels um, that the yogis describe that are called the nadis, N-A-D-I-S. Um, and there's this type of breathing actually called nadi shodhanam, which is the alternate nostril breathing, which is not something that you practice, but I'm sure something you've come across in which you, you close one nostril and breathe in through one and then out through the same one and then close the other, et cetera, et cetera. And it's described that the nadi channels, there's three main kind of, let's call it highways of um, nadis, which carry prana or energy through the body, the spirit body, the, you know, whatever we want to describe it as. And the ida channel, which is on the left side of the body, is more associated with traits of um, kind of, let's, I, I would, I believe, correct if I'm wrong, it's sympathetic nervous system, um, fight or uh, resting. Sympathetic is fight or flight. So parasympathetic, resting, correct? In, in very general, broad sweeping terms, yes. Okay, cool. So let me go with the general broad sweeping terms. So resting state nervous system. The right channel, Pingala, is more associated with fire and fight or flight um, reactions. And when we, what they've offered is if you notice when you're really lethargic, you might have more of an opening in your left nostril, which is associated with the Ida channel. And if you're, um, really excited or anxious, you might have more opening in your right nostril. And they claim that, or I've heard the claim that neither not, neither of your nostril is ever equally open at the same time. Um, one side is often more open than the other. And so you can rebalance your, um, your mental state or your emotional state through alternating kind of the, the way the breath flows through the system. Um, any truth to this or any science behind this? So we're not we're not talking about truth. You're asking mm -hmm. about whether there is uh, strong what we would call scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not aware of it, but that please I'm not encyclopedic about this. But let, let me make mm -hmm. comments about plausibility. When we think about how breath could be influencing higher function, cognition, or emotion. 
the signals that are related to breathing can arrive in the brain by a variety of pathways. One is from this prebotsinger complex projecting that is sending signals directly to parts of the brain. So that's one way, it's sort of internal to the brain. A second way would be through uh, receptors that are activated by the lung expanding and contraction, contracting, coming in through a nerve called the vagus nerve. So every mm -hmm. time you expand your lungs, there are receptors in your lung that become activated. They send signals up into the brainstem through the vagus nerve. We know that for clinical effects, stimulation of the vagus nerve can be very effective in treating depression. So there's something about vagal nerve signals that can affect emotional state. So, and being that there's a breathing modulator component, that's another way signals are entered. A third way breathing signals can have an effect is that the drive for slow breathing is not coming from pre-Butzinger complex, it's coming from the region of the brain called the motor cortex because you're controlling it volitionally. So mm. that's signal that is basically broadcast to lots of places. So effectively, when we take conscious control of our breath, it's actually not the pre-Butzinger complex that's, that's, that's causing the breath. It's actually our motor um, complex. As best we can tell, it's acting through the pre-Butzinger complex. Got so it. it's the, the signal from motor cortex is telling the pre-Butzinger complex that instead of following its own intrinsic rhythm, to follow the rhythm that you are generating volitionally or consciously. Wow. So cool. But then, then the prebutsinger would still be sending its signals out, except it's not the master of its own fate now. It's being driven uh, else. Now, another so cool. very important pathway are the nostrils. So olfactory signals are very important in sending breathing signals to the brain because obviously you have the in inhale and exhale, which is going across the the sensory membranes inside your nose called the nasal mucosa, and that is sending signals to your brain. If you wipe them out, uh, and this is done in experimental animals, uh, you have uh, humans who have problems with smell, but it's not necessarily related to smell. You actually have what are called pressure receptors that detect the inflow and outflow of air that are in your airways, in your nostril airways. That's an important way for signals related to breathing to get in. Um, now, how, do, how does breathing practice affect it when your nose is totally stuffed? I don't know about that data, but it would be an interesting experiment to do in humans, yeah. except it's not an experiment you could do double blind because any humans awake is going to know that their nose is stuffed. Um, could, you, could you do an experiment by which you... You had a number of individuals who perhaps you close, you had them close one nostril and only breathe through the other nostril, see the effect on, on their brain patterns um, when breathing through that nostril and then the other nostril um, and see if there's a difference because you would expect less oxygen coming through the lungs from one nostril might lead to maybe a more anxious state, but perhaps... Um, one of them surprisingly actually leads to 
you know, um, lower anxiety as measured through brain wave activity. Just a thought. Gospel <laughs> won't cause your oxygen levels to drop. You'll just breathe deeper. And that's a mm. confounding effect. Oh, interesting. Because now you're breathing deeper, so it's naturally going to calm you. Right. Um, one way to, to think about doing the experiment in humans is many humans, uh, for a variety of reasons, have trach tubes. They have mm. tubes inserted in the trachea. They're breathing tubes because uh, they have certain diseases. They have uh, a very serious apneas. And they can keep it, uh, for example, uh, people who have a mutation that calls central congenital hyperventilation syndrome have trouble breathing when they sleep. If you catch it in newborns, you can manage it medically. And typically what they do is they get tracheal tubes because they breathe fine during wakefulness. They don't breathe fine during sleep. And when they fall asleep, you connect them to a ventilator. But they have no nostril. When, when their trach tubes are open, there's no airflow through their nostrils. So you may be able to compare, in, even in these individuals, between airflow through their nostrils and airflow bypassing their nostrils. But here again, they're aware of the, the change you're making. So that makes the experiment. Mm -hmm. Difficult. But let's talk about the lateralization. The left and right cortex are different. And we know mm -hmm. this. Speech is on one side. Uh, if you're right handed, the motor cortex on the left side is different than it is on the right side, which goes to the, the left side, which might be the, the weak hand if you're right handed. So there's definitely a seri serious, meaningful asymmetries between left cortex and right cortex. When I block one nostril, the projections that are going into the brain, my understanding, are to both sides, but they may not be symmetric. That I simply don't know. And mm -hmm. so by, by holding one nostril or the other, you may be lateralizing the information that's coming in to left side or right side. That is, the breathing-related oscillations may now be, be stronger on one side than the other because you're holding one nostril. If that's the case, then it's not hard to put together a just-so story that because of the difference between left side and right side of the cortex are well-established, that this could have consequences in terms of sympathetic and parasympathetic outflow. Now, the outflow itself is... Uh, there's a significant component that's happening in the brainstem, and I'm unaware of significant lateralization in the brainstem. Mm. But the lateralization in higher function related to emotion and cognition uh, may be very significant. And so occluding one nostril or the other potentially could influence signal processing on the left side or the right side of the cortex, which then can... Uh, percolate and having effect in sympathetic outflow. Now, this is all highly speculative. I usually don't talk like this unless it's late at night with the beer in my hand. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in the proper frame of mind. This is, uh, I don't have any, uh, my blood alcohol content right now is zero. So I may not be saying <laughs> I'm not being so speculative 
But this is very speculative, and it's the kind of thing that scientists might talk about late at night. And I want to make very clear to your listeners that this is very speculative. I'm not talking about this based on um, expertise in being familiar with all of the literature. It's basically an extension of what I know fairly well, but into regions that I'm being, I'm speculating. So I'm, my speculation may not have any more value than someone who is much less knowledgeable than me. Okay, so I want to, I appreciate the, um, the caveat there for the listeners. I want to close with, I guess, two, just maybe, maybe a little bit more kind of um, rapid fire questions. So what is, what is the most kind of wondrous or magnificent um, discovery or learning that you've made about breath and the nervous system? Like, what's like, is there something that you've learned over these years that you're just like, still like, wow, holy shit. Like, I can't, like, I can't believe it. <laughs> um, well, aside from the inside baseball discoveries of how it might be working, the most amazing thing is that it's not simple. That And it's not just about oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's about a lot more than that. I thought breathing would be simply just generating a sine wave, and that would be it. And we're using breathing for everything. Every time you defecate, you're controlling breathing because that Valsalva maneuver where you co-contract your abdominal muscles in your diaphragm allows you to put pressure on your colon to get rid of your fecal matter. You're manipulating breathing. You're doing it all the time. <laughs> uh, what a beautiful way to describe taking a poop. And you're using it all the time. And the fact that it works all the time, and yet it's extremely labile. So when you're sitting here, you're using about 250 milliliters of oxygen per minute just to sit here. You get up and walk, your oxygen consumption goes up about three times. So you say no big deal. But the amount of oxygen you have that's available for metabolism in your blood is only 1,000 milliliters of oxygen. In other words, you only have a four-minute supply. So if your breathing stopped for four minutes, you start getting irreversible brain damage and you would die before too long. Hmm. So we don't have a big reservoir. So if your oxygen consumption when you're walking now goes to 750 and you only have 1,000, you better increase your breathing rapidly. And you actually increase your breathing before you get up. That is, your brain anticipates because you know you're going to get up. Your brain knows that well before even you know it. You become consciously aware of it, and it increases your breathing. So this is an extraordinarily well-designed system through 100 million years of evolution to work as well as it does so well that the only times we really think about it is when it fails, and it doesn't fail very often. Um, so I think that that's part of it in this late discovery in my scientific life of how breathing can actually directly affect emotional and cognitive state has been just totally, if I can use the 60 phrase, mind blowing. Um, yeah. it's, it's just 
pretty amazing. It's incredible. And it's been quite wonderful because it's put me in contact with a lot of people outside the silo who increased my knowledge about the world. And yeah. I've enjoyed their perspective on breath, which has just opened up new worlds about thinking about breathing that I this is this is a perfect this is a perfect segue to the final question, which is um, you you have one hypothesis that you absolutely are dying to test um, to prove what is it? I want to show unequivocally that changes in breathing pattern can have an effect on emotional state. Mm. Uh, At this point in my life, I realized I don't have an infinite amount of time left to do experiments. This is an experiment I think I could do before I go on my bucket list. Before you stop breathing. Well, no, no. I I don't want to die in my lab. I want to, you know, be able to do other things. You know, know, work in a lab is pretty time consuming. I mean, it's pretty obsessive. I'm I'm probably somewhere on the OCD scale in terms of that and being a worker. (laughs) There are lots of interesting things that I don't do or can't do um, because I have this this need to do this. I want to I have a need to understand things. And uh, so in addition to trying and so there's two big problems we're working on the layer. One is how the rhythm is generated, and that's an inside baseball issue, but we've made a breakthrough recently, and we think we've discovered a novel mechanism by which the rhythm is actually generated. And I would say that no one out there in your audience has any inkling about about this. It's not anything that we even thought of 10 years ago. And the other thing is to show that breathing itself. So we're doing experiments in mice to get them to slow breathe on command. And when we do that, we have very preliminary data that that changes their response to fearful conditions. Now, if we get that to the point of publication, that'll be a huge step forward in demonstrating that this is not a placebo effect, that this is not something that humans have to be cajoled into. It's something hardwired into our brains and that that would be great because there are a lot of people who would benefit from breathing practice who think it's too woo-woo, too, you know, mm-hmm. have to be in a, an extreme. You have to be a believer in a particular philosophy yeah. or religion, and it's none of those things. And that would have an incredible public health benefit that I would be delighted to be play a part in disseminating. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to invite you on the show. And I really appreciated this time, Jack. Thank you so much. I mean, just like a wealth of of knowledge and insights and delivered in, in a way that we waiters can understand. And um, just really, really super grateful to you. This is like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a pop, uh, pop interested in, in uh, neuroscience and it's, it's just so cool. So thank you so much. Appreciate you. Anything you want to leave for the lead for the listeners before we go? Yes. I want to thank you for this opportunity. You've been a wonderful host. You've asked a lot of questions. I would have, if I put down the list of questions I'd like to address, you've dealt with uh, uh, almost all of them or all of them really. 
And I <laughs> hope that our conversation can continue because we're not done. And I'm sure your listeners might have questions. And if you relent them to me, we can talk about it. And when this COVID thing simmers down, I don't think it'll ever go away. It'd be fun to get together and have one of these late night, late night conversations. I would love that. That would be an absolute joy. So thank you, Jack. And you have a good one. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Lookup Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, For those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. 